Father in heaven, you've been very good to us this week. We thank you for the blessings that we have received. And I pray that this evening we would be blessed again and that you would give me the words to speak. May our hearts be touched and may we gain a greater appreciation and insight in what it truly means to sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. The title for the message this evening is The Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Revelation 15, starting in verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. After Revelation 14, which paints a picture of the three angels' messages, which produced the 144,000, which leads to the harvest of the righteous and the wicked, Revelation 15 begins with a scene in which we see the seven angels ready to pour out the seven last plagues. But before the seven last plagues are described, God shows us what it is like for those who gain the victory over the beast so that they don't receive the outpouring of the seven last plagues. In other words, God is giving us a picture of what is needed to gain this victory so that you don't receive the seven last plagues. Now let me give you a little clue. I don't think I need to say this, but if you read the actual seven last plagues in Revelation 16, it becomes quickly apparent you don't want to receive the mark of the beast. And Revelation 15 shows us how to gain the victory. Nobody wants to get the mark of the beast, but how do we gain the victory over that mark? Revelation chapter 15, starting in verse 2, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass, mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. So we see a picture of heaven where we see the sea of glass. And there is a special group of people. These are the ones who lived in the last days. This is not describing all the righteous who have ever lived. It's only the righteous who live at the end of the world who gain the victory over the beast, over his image, over the mark, and over the number of his name. Right? Those who lived in Old Testament times, it can't be said of them that they gained the victory over the beast. It is especially describing those who were alive at the time when all the world wonders after the beast. These are a special group of people who gained the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. And I pray by the grace of God that we would be among that number. 
verse 3 tells us more about this people. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are, they, are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. This special group of people sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. They have the Lamb's Father's name written in their foreheads, as Revelation 14 says. This is the 144,000 singing this special song. Now, a couple of interesting points. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. Moses is described as the servant of God, and the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 7 are also described as the servants of God who receive the seal of God in their foreheads. They've gained the victory over the beast and over his image and over the mark and over the number of his name. Therefore, they have received the seal of God in their foreheads. And just as Moses is described as the servant of God, the 144,000 are described as the servants of God. If you want to know what it means to be a servant of God, study Romans chapter 6. <coughs> Romans chapter 6. Now, when you sing a song, in the Bible, a song that is sung describes what? It describes an experience. And this group of people are able to sing a song that describes an experience that matches Moses and the Lamb, and the Lamb is Jesus, of course. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the book of Revelation, he is the Lamb who had been slain in Revelation chapter 5. He's the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world in Revelation 13, 8. And here we see, oh, and then in Revelation 14, the 144,000 stand with the Lamb, and the Lamb's Father's name is written in their foreheads. And in Revelation 15, we see that the 144,000 sing the song of the Lamb as well. This is quite an experience. If you can sing a song that matches the experience of not only Moses, but Jesus. That's not a song that can just be sung by anybody. This is a special experience with a special song sung by a special people who have gained the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. If you break that down into its components, the beast we understand is the first beast of Revelation 13 with seven heads and ten horns, the Antichrist beast who the dragon gave his power, seat, and authority to that all the world wonders after. It's the beast that unites church and state in, in an idolatrous way or in a way that causes spiritual fornication to be committed. And the image of the beast is the union of church and state. The mark of the beast is Sunday worship. And the number of the name of the beast is 666. Now, I'm just going to make a little side point. But in the Greek, 
660 and 6 is used in Greek to add up to 660 and 6. It's not 6 and 6 and 6. There are some people who try to say that 666 is just 6 three times. The number of a man is 6 and the number of God is 7. 6 is imperfection, 7 is perfection. But friends, in the Greek, it's 660 and 6. It's not 6 and 6 and 6. If you add 6 three times, you get 18. Simple math. And 666 is the title of the Pope. And clearly, there are going to be things that happen with this beast power that the Pope is going to have a lot of say in. So we as God's people need to know exactly what we're gaining the victory over. We're gaining the victory over the beast, that whole system, and over the image of the beast, which is the union of church and state, and over the mark of the beast, which is Sunday worship, and over the number of his name, which is the title of the Pope, Vicarious Filii Dei, Vicar of the Son of God. We gain the victory over a complete false system of worship that goes against the true worship of God. And we sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Who was Moses? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. We know that Moses is described as being the meekest man on the earth, and that was not said in a proud way. He truly was the meekest man on the earth. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. This is Moses speaking to the children of Israel before he dies. And he says, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. Now who is this prophet that the Lord would raise up in the midst of them? That would be like Moses. That's the Messiah. Go to Acts chapter 7, verse 37, to underscore this point. This is Stephen giving his sermon just before he is put to death, and has, as he's speaking to the stiff-necked leaders of the house of Israel, he says of Jesus, This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear. So, Stephen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as recorded in the book of Acts, is verifying what Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, that Jesus is the Messiah who is the one that would be like Moses. Now, Moses had to be a special man for Jesus to be compared to him. Now, Moses wasn't as good as Jesus. You know why? Well, obviously, because all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and we know that Moses sinned. The book of Hebrews makes it very clear that Moses was not as good as Jesus, but there's a comparison. For Jesus to even be compared to Moses tells us the kind of man that Moses was when he was connected to God. In Hebrews chapter 3, speaking of Jesus, it says in verse 1 that he's the apostle and high priest of our profession. And in verse 2, it says, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. Jesus was faithful, Moses was faithful. But we keep reading, for this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, 
inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after, but Christ as a son over his own house. Whose house are we? So clearly Christ is greater than Moses, yet it says Moses was faithful as a servant in his house for a testimony of those things which, are, which were to be spoken after. Moses was the meekest man in all the earth. If you read the chapter in Patriarchs and Prophets on the death of Moses, Ellen White says of Moses that he was the greatest poet, the greatest writer, the greatest leader. There are so many superlatives to describe the meekest man on the earth because of his connection to God. And God's last day people are going to sing the song of Moses. But what especially about Moses is going to connect to God's last day people. There's so many other things we could describe. We can talk about how when he came down from the mount and he saw the children of Israel dancing around a golden calf, he rebuked sin fearlessly when his brother Aaron had no spine and allowed sin to go unchecked. And Ellen White says in her writings that most people in the church would prefer leaders like Aaron because Aaron makes them feel good about their sin. Moses was a meek man, but he didn't stray away from calling sin by his right, its right name. In fact, he made the children of Israel drink the gold that was in the creek after they burned the golden calf. Now, how about that? But the song of Moses is a song described in the Bible. And in fact, some of you probably know the scripture song from Exodus 15. Let's go to Exodus 15. This is in Scripture, the Song of Moses. And as you're turning there, remember Moses is also the man who, when God became so upset with the children of Israel, he said, I will destroy this people and make of you a great nation. And in Exodus 32 says, God, if you do that, your name will be profaned among the heathen because they'll say the God of the children of Israel just led them out into the wilderness to destroy them, and then your character will be misrepresented to the surrounding nations. God, please don't do that. If anything, you could blot my name out of the book of life so that they would be saved. Now, let me ask you this. When you see apostasy in the church, is that your attitude towards the apostates? Are you ready to sing the song of Moses? Or are you saying, they're going to burn? <laughs> Just wait till the lake of fire comes. They're going to be sorry for that apostasy they brought in. Or do you have the spirit of Moses? Lord, blot my name out so that you could save them. Let's look at the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. Exodus 15, starting in verse 1. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord. For he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. 
He is my God, and I will prepare him in habitation. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captives also are drowned in the Red Sea. And you can read on down through the verses, and it keeps speaking of this glorious, miraculous victory that God has bestowed upon his people when the Egyptian army was drowned in the Red Sea after they successfully passed through the Red Sea as if it were dry land. Now, let's just think about this song for a moment. This song is a song of the experience of Moses and the children of Israel when they experienced triumph at the hands of their enemies. When it seemed as if they were going to be wiped off the face of the earth. If you think about it from a human perspective, the Egyptians have been through ten plagues. And they've just lost the firstborn of their children and the firstborn of their animals. And they're angry. They've lost their, for, their labor force. They've lost their firstborn of their children and of their livestock, not to mention all of the other damage that the plagues have done. And they're coming to exact retribution. And when the children of Israel look up and they see the Egyptian army coming, in front of them is the Red Sea, the, on the other side is, an, is a mountain, and behind them is the Egyptian army, there is no way out. They aren't trained to fight. They can't gather together quickly and hastily form an army and say, let's do the best we can and see if we can fight them and push them off. They have no battle skills. They have no military skills. They will be wiped out if they try to fight them. They're going to go back to forced slavery otherwise. If they try to go into the Red Sea, they're going to drown. There's no way to climb a mountain before being overtaken by the army. There is no way out. And then, when it seems as if they are all going to die or all go back to slavery, the hand of God delivers for them in the most miraculous way. This pillar of cloud shows up. It becomes a pillar of light for them. It's a pillar of darkness to the Egyptians. And then the Red Sea is opened up, and they pass through as if that Red Sea is dry land. They get to the other side, and the Egyptians, after having gone through ten plagues, and sometimes so I wonder how foolish could you be, after having been through ten plagues already, where you've seen the hand of God, then the Egyptians foolishly go into the Red Sea, and the water starts seeping into their path, and they get stuck. And before it's too, I mean, once it's too late for them to turn around, they realize they have met their end, and they all meet their end, and they're drowned in the sea. And God's people meet a signal victory from God's delivering hand on their behalf. That is the Song of Moses. Don't you think? If you had been among the children of Israel and you were singing this song, you would have sung it with gusto and with energy and with triumph and with praise and thanksgiving. Your heart would be filled because you know that you are now on your way to the promised land that you will never see the Egyptians again. 
your captors, your slave masters, those who were bent for your destruction will never be in your life again. What a moment of deliverance. Ellen White says in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 289, the song and the great deliverance which it commemorates made an an impression never to be effaced from the memory of the Hebrew people. From age to age, it was echoed by the prophets and singers of Israel, testifying that Jehovah is the strength and deliverance of those who trust in him. But listen to this. This is Patriarch and the Prophets, page 289. That song does not belong to the Jewish people alone. It points forward to the destruction of all the foes of righteousness and the final victory of the Israel of God. Going on in the next page, she says, The great lesson here taught is for all time. Often the Christian life is beset by dangers and duty seems hard to perform. The imagination pictures impending ruin before and bondage or death behind. Yet the voice of God speaks clearly, go forward. We should obey this command even though our eyes cannot penetrate the darkness and we feel the cold waves about our feet. The obstacles that hinder our progress will never disappear before a halting, doubting spirit. Those who defer obedience till every shadow of uncertainty disappears and there remains no risk of failure or defeat will never obey at all. This song is sung by those who step forward in faith into this path with the human eye saying, we're supposed to walk through water and then it parts, the sea parts and it turns into dry land. And this is a symbol of the victory of God's last day people, the 144,000, who will face circumstances that are equally trying, if not worse. We will be facing a death decree. We won't be able to buy or sell. And if you've been storing up food in the pantry for the time of trouble, it's going to be gone. So if you try to get one of those survival bunkers where you have everything stored away for the time of trouble, someone's going to find it and you're going to lose it anyway. Okay? So you're going to be cut off from all earthly human support. And there will be no way out. And not only are you facing a death decree where the enemies of God's people are coming to destroy you, you will be going through Jacob's time of trouble where it will also feel as if God has forsaken you. If you read Patriarchs and Prophets and you read about Jacob's night of wrestling, he felt as if the angel that he was wrestling with was an enemy. And in fact, Ellen White says that the angel who was the pre-incarnate Christ reminded Jacob of his sin in addition to Satan reminding Jacob of his sin. So Satan is reminding Jacob of his sin, Jesus is reminding Jacob of his sin, and that is what's going to happen to God's people when we go through Jacob's time of trouble. We'll be facing a death decree. We're cut off from all earthly support. We don't know where our next meal is coming from. By faith, we claim the promise. Bread will be given us. Our water will be sure. We'll be relying on angels probably to sustain us. 
and it seems as if we won't be able to get through because we're going to be surrounded by all earthly foes, and it almost seems as if God is reminding us of our sin as well from our past before we've confessed and had our sin forgiven. And then, gloriously, just when it seems that we are going to be wiped off of planet Earth, Jesus will appear as the great deliverer. And you don't think that when the 144,000 sing the song of Moses, the song of deliverance, this is going to be the greatest song of all time. There will never be a song sung like the song of Moses. And I pray that I will be there to sing it. Now, if we tarry... If we have to tarry until Jesus comes and we are laid to rest before that time, to God be the glory to those who will sing that song someday. But I pray and hope that I would be among that number who sings this song. And we look at this song, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, and we're saying, I want to sing that song of victory. I want to sing that song of deliverance. I want to be among that number that gains the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. I want to be like Moses and the children of Israel who it seemed as if they were facing certain defeat and then they see the destruction of God's enemies. I want to be among that number that sings that song. But you know, Revelation 15 says that this song is not just the song of Moses. It's also the song of the Lamb. Now, I took you to Exodus 15, and that should be easy to remember. Revelation 15, song of Moses. Exodus 15, song of Moses. When it comes to the song of the Lamb... There is nowhere in the Bible where you can turn to a passage of Scripture where it says, and the Lamb opened his mouth and sang. It's not there directly, but it is there. Turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53. If you want to know how to gain the victory over the beast... If you want to sing the song of Moses, which is a song of deliverance and victory, you will need to sing the song of the Lamb as well. In Isaiah chapter 53, it starts off in verse 1, which says, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now, I came to a greater understanding of what verse 1 means when I was studying the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 10, Verse 16, it says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? And what Paul is saying in the book of Romans, he's saying, and it's actually the gospel message to the Jews, and not all have believed the gospel message of Jesus as the Messiah. What Paul is saying is, we preach the gospel, and even if not everybody who hears the gospel believes the gospel, we're going to preach the gospel anyway, because it will, ha it will have its effect on the true-hearted believer. And so Jesus comes to this earth, and amazingly, even when God was on earth in human form, many did not believe when God revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Why did they not believe? Verse 2, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus was not a flashy person. He wasn't someone that did things in a flashy way to try to attract people to boost the numbers in his church. He did things in a way that were modest and simple. And because of that, the Jewish leaders who were looking for flashy and grandiose and powerful in their mind, they rejected someone who came like a plant that was a root out of dry ground because he had no form nor comeliness. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Do you think if you're going to sing the song of the Lamb that you won't have an experience similar to Jesus at some point? You're trying to do the work of the Lord. You're following the counsel, and it feels sometimes as if your efforts are not being rewarded. Look, leave the numbers to God. Simply follow God's way and his message, the way he has designed it to be. You know, one time I heard Pastor C.D. Brooks give a sermon in California when I was at Loma Linda, and we, we drove an hour and a half to hear him speak because he didn't come around that often. He lived on the East Coast. So we drove over on a Friday night. This was back in 2005. And he was preaching a Friday night message, and he said, you know, I'm tired of people saying that we need to make things more attractive to the world and to dumb down our message that we'll, so that we'll bring more numbers in. And I'll never forget this moment. He says, we don't need more of people like that. We need people like that to leave <laughs> so the latter rain can be poured out. Numbers are not an evidence that God's people are ready. Do we have the character of Jesus who was meek and lowly? Listen, if you're doing all this flashy stuff to, to boost your numbers, that's not an evidence of the moving of the Holy Spirit. An evidence of the moving of the Holy Spirit is that you are following the simplicity of Jesus and the humility of Jesus. Jesus, when he came to this earth, many didn't believe him because he wasn't flashy and shiny. Verse 4, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And by the way, I'm just going to make a passing point. There are some strangely in Adventism who have adopted this idea, this concept of what's called the moral influence theory, where Jesus died to be a good example for us so that we would good, be good people, but he didn't really die for our sins. Well, what do you do with Isaiah 53 where it says, The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just, if you ever run into that theology, use that verse. See what they say. Now, getting back to the Song of the Lamb. He was oppressed 
and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Do you see the song of the lamb here? The song of Moses is singing the song of triumph and of victory and of deliverance. The song of the Lamb is Jesus the Lamb of God when going through his crucifixion experience, opening not his mouth. You know, the experience of Jesus going through Gethsemane and the Pilate's judgment hall and going in front of Herod and then going to Calvary and how he reacted to being mistreated is the exact opposite to how almost every single human being reacts under provocation. We can show our Christian character, and we're like, Lord, please help me, they're being annoying today, and yet many of us, when a certain line is crossed, we say, that's it, I can't take it anymore, and I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. And then we think that when the mark of the beast crisis comes, when Satan pours out every power and trick in the book that he can to get God's people to fall, that because we can't, somehow we're not getting through and doing okay when we're around annoying people, and so we snap when the line is crossed, that when the beast power throws everything that he has at us, that we'll have the meekness and character of Jesus during that crisis. So we're going to sing a song of victory while we're fighting like the spirit of the enemy against the enemy. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world as he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, he opened not his mouth. That's humanly impossible. You have to have the power of God in your heart. to be able to keep your mouth shut when provoked. Now here's the thing. It's hard enough to keep your mouth closed when you are being provoked for something you've done wrong. Human nature will rise up and say, I know I was wrong, but don't talk to me like this. Here's why I did what I did. It's quite another thing to keep your mouth shut when you've done what's right and you're still suffering for it. And that's the example of Jesus. You know, in verse 10, moving forward in this chapter, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11, He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. There you see it again. He bears our sins. And by the knowledge of what Jesus did, he opened not his mouth, he bore our sins. By that knowledge, he shall justify many. Now, 1 Peter chapter 2 refers to Isaiah 53 when relating to the Christian experience of how Jesus 
is our example and how we are to sing the song of the Lamb. And the song of the Lamb is that he opened not his mouth when provoked, even when he didn't do anything wrong. And we're going to pick it up in verse 17 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter makes this very clear. Verse 17. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Servants, be subject to your master with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. In other words, some of you, and he's actually speaking to those who are perhaps even in slavery at that time, but it could also apply to those of us who work, who have bosses who are above us. And that's not necessarily slavery. It just means that you have someone in authority over you. And he says, be subject to those that are not only nice to you, but to those who are not nice to you. And then he says, verse 19, for this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Notice verse 20. For what glory is it? I've kind of said this already, but notice this verse. For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently, but if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Listen, it's one thing if you patiently react when you make a mistake and you are rebuked for your mistake, and you take it patiently. Many of us would say, well, I had good Christian experience there. No, not really. The Bible says that's just something an ordinary human not connected to God would be expected to do. Now, of course, in the world we live in now, people still fight back when they mess up and say, I know I messed up, but I'm still going to defend why I did what I did anyway. But what is acceptable to God is that when you're doing what is right and you suffer for it and you take the suffering patiently, that is the demonstration of being a true Christian. And that is humanly impossible unless you're connected to Jesus. And you may say, how could it be that I could live this way? Verse 21, for even hereunto were you called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. So how did Christ leave us an example? How should we follow his steps? Verse 22, who did no sin, that's point number one, neither was guile found in his mouth. And oh, by the way, the 144,000 in Revelation 14, verse 5, it says, and in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So Jesus is our example, and this is preparation to be part of the 144,000 to sing that song. Verse 23, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Now, if you have your margin that connects New Testament verses to Old Testament verses, verse 23 connects to Isaiah 53, where it says he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and he opened not his mouth. Peter is referring to that when he says, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Jesus was a perfect being. He had not sinned. He did not deserve to be treated the way he was being treated. 
And this is the example that he leaves for us. That as a lamb, he opened not his mouth. And so when you think about the experience that he goes through, he's in the, the courtroom, and as he is in between phases of the trial, he is being hit, he is being beaten, he is being whipped, he is being spat upon. And there are people saying, prophesy, who spat upon you? And Jesus could have in an instant, walked away from being in the, in the path that man must trod in a fallen human nature and said, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm going to show them who I really am. Jesus was tempted to use his divinity to put those fallen human sinful beings in their place whom he created, and in an instant he could have told them everything about their life and caused such fear in their hearts that they would have fled in terror. But Jesus didn't do that because he was our example. And when we come to that point, all the martyrs who came before him and came after him who relied on the grace of God didn't have such power to tap into. Jesus had to rely on the same power that we do under the same temptation. And Jesus illustrates how to respond when being provoked and treated unfairly, and that is to say nothing. Now, this does not mean that we sit idly by while truth is being torn down in the church. Now, we speak up for what's right in the spirit of Jesus. But this is speaking of personal grievances, of how someone is treating you rather than fighting back in your human nature, we learn to follow Jesus, our example, that we would follow his steps, that when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Listen, if you're going to sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, don't think that you're going to sing this song of victory where you've gained the victory over the beast and over his image and over the mark and over the number of his name if you're fighting back with the spirit of the devil who's given his power, seat, and authority to the beast. That's not going to work. In order to get through the final crisis of earth's history, we truly need to follow Jesus and his example who did not fight back when provoked. And he had a right to, humanly speaking. You know, I think I mentioned this in passing last night about sometimes some of the things I see on Facebook and it really kind of motivates me to be on Facebook less, and maybe I should unfollow certain people. But I see the same tired old arguments about the same old issues day after day, week after week, and I see people losing their Christian experience among fellow Seventh-day Adventists as they fight over certain issues in the church, and you think you're going to go through the final crisis and stand with a lamb on Mount Zion? and you're fighting with each other and stirring the pot and being the accuser of the brethren and saying things about this minister or that pastor or that church, and then it creates a reaction, and then other people join in, and some people are creating reactions intentionally to stir the pot, to bring attention to their ministry, and is that the spirit of Jesus? God hasn't called us to do that kind of a work. 
do we really have the Spirit of Jesus? You know, it's actually a lot easier in some ways to sing the song of Moses than it is to sing the song of the Lamb for obvious reasons. We're going to triumph. We're going to gain the victory over the beast. Let's go forth by faith to conquer that beast. But when the rubber meets the road and your human nature is provoked, do you have the song of the Lamb to sing so that you can truly gain the victory over the beast? Because when the 144,000 are sealed with the Lamb's Father's name in their foreheads, that means that when you are placed in the same situation as the Lamb was placed when he went through his final events on this earth, we will respond the way the Lamb did. In his mouth was found no guile. In the mouth of the 144,000 is found no guile. They will be found without fault before the throne of God. Hebrews 9.14 says that Jesus as the lamb was offered without spot, but the marginal in the Greek is without fault. We will be like Jesus. With all that implies, and I, to me, the hardest thing of being like Jesus is to keep your mouth closed when you are treated the way Jesus was treated when he went through his experience in Gethsemane and the courtroom with Pilate and Herod and then finally on the cross. You can't do it in your own strength. And if you think that you can just keep trying to pull yourselves up by the bootstraps, it's not going to be enough when the final crisis comes. Don't try to comfort yourself with false platitudes that even though you're still losing your temper every day and getting short and cross and whatever it is, impatient, every day of the week, three times a day, five times a day, however it is, I don't know your hearts. I'm not making a judgment on any one person here because I'm not around you every day. I'm a visitor. but I've been around enough human beings to know that that's the way human beings are. And in a room full this size, there's at least one or two people who have that experience. And it's probably more than that. The good news is, is that Jesus is our example, and he has promised to give us the victory over these besetting sins. And that when the final crisis comes, we can sing the song of the Lamb as the beast comes after us. That's the only way you're going to gain the victory over the beast. Then when you gain the victory over the beast by singing the song of the Lamb, you'll be able to sing the song of triumph and deliverance, which is the song of Moses. So you'll sing both songs, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, and nobody else has ever sung that combination of a song before. And that is what God is promising to do for his people. Do you wonder why we haven't come to the final crisis of earth's history yet? In practical terms, you know, we've talked about a lot of things, but God looks at his people and he's like, boy, <laughs> they lose their temper with their wife every time they get cross. I don't think they're ready for the beast yet. You really think that if you lose your temper with your spouse every day, or three times a week, or wherever it is, and it's a habitual pattern in your relationships, 
that somehow that's going to be gone when the final crisis hits? That's why this passage is in the Bible for us. Because the Lord in his mercy to us says, my grace is sufficient for you. You might have Irish blood like a McNulty. And that famous Irish temper, that's not going to be a good excuse for me in the judgment. Oh, well, all the McNulty's in my line had an Irish temper. God, I couldn't help it. That's not going to matter. Jesus is my example. Jesus is your example. His grace is, is sufficient no matter what baggage you have in your life. And by the grace of, of Jesus, I want to sing the song of Moses and I also want to sing the song of the Lamb. And the amazing thing is, is that when we sing the song of the Lamb here on the earth and when we sing the song of the Lamb in heaven, we will follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth because we have his experience. Is that the experience you want? That's the experience God promises to give you. And if that's what you want, I invite you to kneel with me as we close this prayer tonight. Our Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus and his example. Father, we are weak. We know what we're like when we're disconnected from Jesus. We have ugly characters. We have bad tendencies and bad habits. And we need to learn how to hang on to you every day. Lord, help us. We're like Peter sinking in the water on the Sea of Galilee. Proud of our efforts so often until we take our eyes off Jesus and then quickly we're sinking before we even know it, slipping and getting ornery, getting short, quick, upset, frustrated, and losing our Christian experience, and let's be honest, with very simple things. And we need your grace to give us your spirit right now so that we can be a representative of your character, first of all, on our own families. So that we can represent your character when the final crisis comes and the beast and his image and his mark and the number of name of his name kicks into full gear. We need Jesus to help us. Please help us. Please forgive us for where we have fallen short and help us to commit this evening to surrender this area of our lives to you. If we've been making excuses and saying, oh, everybody slips, everybody gets impatient, everybody gets short when they're tired, help us to remember that the Lord has promised that we can learn to endure weariness, hunger, and delay, and that there's no excuse for slipping. That being tired or being hungry or being late for something is no reason to become impatient or fretful or whatever it may be. Thank you that you love us and that you have plans for us to transform us fully and completely into the image of Jesus. And may we be sustained by your grace going forward from this day until Jesus comes. Thank you for speaking to us this evening. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.